Fabulist. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Taylor. And I'm Shannon Payne. And we're back with a new episode today. Crazy. How does that happen? <laughs> Every week, it seems right? like. It's so Miracles. nuts. <laughs> <laughs> and this one's pretty summery. It does feel right for the season. Mm-hmm. And this is my favorite thing about summertime is going to the national parks. National parks. There's so much fun and there's so many. There are so many. It's Wait, crazy. I have the numbers. Do it, you? It's intense. It, I just... Doing research this week and trying to narrow down, which you guys are going to laugh as soon as you hear what I'm talking about, (laughs) (laughs) but trying to decide and narrow down. It was overwhelming. There's so many, especially in Alaska. Oh my gosh. Calm down, Alaska. Real though. I mean, I get it. You're beautiful. But everything there's so big. <laughs> it's true. It's so cold. They can't even do day and night properly. No. They're like, how about half day, half night? Sure, that sounds good. Let's do a year like that. Why not? Freaks me out. Plus, you're for sure going to get vampires like that scary movie. Oh, yeah. Was it called? I just thought of Zero Dark Thirty. <laughs> That's not it at all. No, it's not. You know, um, when it's dark and the vampires mm. come out. Fuck me. I don't know. I think... Is that what it's called? <laughs> yeah. That's a different sort of That's movie. That's a different sort of vampire movie. <laughs> One that I would still watch, but... <laughs> There's a lady on TikTok who does these very deep analytical dives into Twilight shit. Really? And every now and then I see her again and I'm like, she's still up to that. And it's hilarious. <laughs> and there's this whole thing about how nobody wants to say... Is it Renesmee? Is that how you say it? Yeah. Because it's dumb. It's a dumb name. So they call her like Renaissance and Rigatoni and uh-huh. just casually through the whole. I love it. All these TikToks because they just don't like you. Well, it was, it was the same move that we did with our Zimbabwe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Dr. Xanadu. Yeah. Because he's the worst. He's awful. So he deserves to have that happen to him. Right, right. Whatever his name was. Anyway, she's cool. I like the sound of her already. <laughs> Somebody was like, why do you always talk about this? And she's like, because it's really bad and also interesting. Exactly. <laughs> she gets it. I'm on board. She gets us. She does. Mm-hmm. I like it. <laughs> Twilight. <laughs> God damn it. It's just like this weird new phase where it's like, um, kind of like, has Seth ever told you that story about Pokemon when he was a little boy? I don't know if he has. Oh, it's so funny. Oh. Seth, he was playing, I think it's the Game Boy Pokemon games. Yeah. And he had printed out a bunch of pages of like Pokemon shit, like where they live or how to find them or I don't even know who beats what Pokemon stuff. Yeah. And he was embarrassed about it because he's a little too old for Pokemon. He was in junior high at the time. Mm-hmm. And so he was like reading it in his bed, like kind of under the covers because uh-huh. he didn't want anyone to know. It's totally fair. Like his mom would think he was uncool. <laughs> So right? she comes into his room to talk to him, and he quick hides it underneath his cover. <laughs> She's like, what are you doing? He's like, nothing. <laughs> oh and now as a grown-up, he's like, she thought I was looking at naked people. Yeah, for sure. And I was too embarrassed to tell her it was just Pokemon. It was only Pokemon. <laughs> but now as a grown-up, there's nothing embarrassing about Pokemon. No, And I think that's not. where we are with Twilight. It's come back around, and it's like, yeah, fuck, I read those. It's fine. Did I wait in line? No, but I would have. I probably could have. I was, I think I was working or something. No, you know what? I worked at Hastings. 
R.I.P. Hastings. You're in my heart forever. When one of the movies came out. Oh, And so I was there for the midnight release of that. And we dressed up like vampires. Nice. It was a whole thing. So now it's cool again. I love it. I'm here for it. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, um, Alaska's got a lot of national parks. (laughs) That's That's really important. Um, They might have vampires. I don't know. I think the whole point is that we shouldn't know. And definitely not say it out loud. Right. Right. So. Mm They may or may not, for the safety of anyone involved, have vampires in Alaska currently. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Want to hear about how we got them? How really we started do. them? Yeah. Okay. What's my favorite part is that national parks, um, they might be, they, they, they were kind of a pretty American idea. And mm-hmm. I don't, I don't want to say that too lightly. Nothing is original. No, 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 no. Right. But um, we might have been the first people to establish national parks. Oh, okay. According to several American websites. So, Which, yes, <laughs> <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> also, I learned as I was looking up some statistics about national parks that these travel bloggers are not um, fact checking. So, no, not at all. No. Um, don't trust them. Uh, look at five different ones. Maybe make an average. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they are not doing very decent homework no. in the background. <laughs> Definitely real. So even I did the same thing where I looked and made sure that I was making sure that multiple people said the same thing. Right. Still could be wrong. So yeah. we're going to give you guys this information. My, I don't be wrong. Own a set of encyclopedias. I wish I did. That I would be kind of cool. Is anyone making that? Probably like, is there an not. encyclopedia website? Is that Wikipedia? Is that Wikipedia? I was that asking Seth Wikipedia. the other day. This is an important piece of information I need to learn about. What What does wiki even mean? I know what it means. A wiki mm-hmm. is like where you go to find the facts about a thing. Right. But why? Why? So. Okay. Uh, I'll try to learn about that. <laughs> And also, please donate $5 to Wikipedia. They're yes. changing the world a little bit every day by Absolutely. keeping us informed and misinformed. Both at the same time. Your guess is to which one's which. Mm-hmm. But there, are, I think there are some people who are incredibly dedicated to, like, Absolutely. updating factual good shit on Wikipedia. And oh, yeah. heaven bless them. I love it. Me too. I have questions. A lot of them. And so Wikipedia is there for me. Whether or not it is a, a uniquely American idea, it's a cool as hell idea. Yes. Um, and it was inspired uh, in exactly the way that you think it should have been. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, first, I'll tell you what they are. In case you don't know, national parks are congressionally designated protected areas that are managed by the National Park Service. There are 423, but that can change at any time. So when Uh you listen to this, Google it again. There are 423 national park sites in the United States, American Samoa, Guam, Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands. That's so many. That's so many. Oh my gosh. 63 of those sites include national park as part of the proper name. So they're the national parks we think of when we say Utah has five of them. Uh But there are actually 20 different national park types, including national battlefield parks, historic sites, lake shores, memorials, monuments, science or scenic trails, and like a bunch more. Okay. So there's all kinds. There's one that's like wild river beds or something. They're very, and then wow. there's, there's one that's just like other. <laughs> so there are a lot of different kinds and it's just, mm, I don't want anybody to mess that up. Let's make it forever. Oh yeah. That makes sense. That's how we're doing it. I wasn't able to figure out what happens if it's privately owned land. 
Okay. And if they just like commandeer it or they buy it or. Well, I know for like state park levels, because one state park that I used to work at, Harriman State Park, it used to be private property. And okay. then the people who owned it really wanted it to be for the public. So they donated it to the state and then and mandated then that the state, like you can have this land, but you have to protect it and keep it as a state park. And then they never paid pa- taxes again. Pretty much. That's my assumption. I'm assuming. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they, I think they gave it away once they stopped living there. And they just said okay. it was just the Harrimans were like, we don't we don't want to pass it down. We don't want it to be a full on ranch anymore. We just want it to be land that everybody can enjoy, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah. And not another neighborhood. Exactly. Because there's a lot of those. There's so many. And I that might have sounded like I don't want people to have houses. I do. But I think we have enough and we just need to make it so they can afford them. And then they won't have to live in national parks. Yes. I think that's fair. I think so, too. Um, so... The idea for national parks was inspired by wide open spaces, kind of like the the chicks. Okay. Formerly known as a word that we're not supposed to say. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's an artist named George Catlin who was perhaps the first one to suggest it like and write it down. He said in 1832, when he was on a trip into the Dakotas, by some great protecting policy of government in a magnificent park, a nation's park containing man and beast in all the wildness and freshness of their nature's beauty. Oh, that's beautiful. And that's what they are. I, it really is. That's a perfect description for right. it. In 1861, Congress appointed Ferdinand Hayden, head of the government's new geological survey, to lead a fact-finding expedition to the region at the headwaters of the Yellowstone River. The area situated in the Montana and Wyoming territories had been an attraction for explorers, trappers, and prospectors since the late 18th century. That and this next thing I'm going to read are from a National Park Service website article called Origin of the National Park Idea. Perfect. There were numerous accounts of its strange features, geysers, hot springs, and holes of bubbling mud. But it was not until Hayden's team of geologists, botanists, and zoologists returned from their trip that the U.S. government had a full account of the area's wonders. Which makes Yellowstone sound like Mars. It does. Well, and going to Yellowstone, it does feel like a different world. It is very different. It is. It's a wild place. It is cool as hell. And I recently talked Shannon into letting us do a long thing about it. So get excited get for excited that. Get excited for that because it's going to be great. The whole thing is a caldera. Oh, yeah. Which is a volcano. It's all, it's a super volcano. It's terrifying mm-hmm. and amazing. I, I feel like we're in a good spot. But we'll get into it. We're in a good spot to be in because if it goes off, we won't know much about it. It's fine. I That's my preference. We're what, just going to go. I just want to die. If I, I want to either be fine or die fast. Yeah, I don't want to sit here and just dread it for hours and hours and hours. Or die miserably trapped yeah. under something. Mm-hmm. Yep. Like quick or not at all. That's mm-hmm. my preference. Nobody's asking, but that's my preference. That would be what I would prefer. Hayden came back to Washington and he was like, bro, we got to keep this safe. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And Congress was like, for the first time ever, hell yeah. That fast. Yeah. (laughs) So he was able to convince Congress to approve the legislation, making Yellowstone, quote, a public park or pleasuring ground for the benefit and enjoyment of the people. Grow up, Shannon. (laughs) (laughs) Benefit and enjoyment of the people. And the bill was signed by President Ulysses S. Grant in 1872. I love it. (laughs) 
Um, the bill also gave the Secretary of the Interior the responsibility for, quote, the preservation from injury or spoilation. This is a great word. <laughs> it is. Of all timber, mineral deposits, natural curiosities or wonders within said park and their retention in their natural condition, which remains the mission of the National Park Service today. Yes. To, without interfering, preserve things for people's enjoyment and education in perpetuity. Absolutely. And they do a lot of work now in community revitalization in the areas where their parks are. National Park Service is doing cool things. I love it. It's a very cool arm of our government. The Forest Reserve Act of 1891 is what allowed presidents to proclaim permanent forest reserves on publicly owned land, which later translated into national forests. Okay. Then we had the Antiquities Act of June 8th of 1906, which is a Teddy Roosevelt move. Mm -hmm. And that made it possible for presidents to proclaim historic landmarks, historic or prehistoric structures, and other objects of historic or scientific interest in federal ownership as national monuments. Okay. Then we had the Organic Act of 1916, creating the National Park Service um, to conserve the scenery and the natural and historic objects of wildlife therein and to provide for the employment of the same in such a manner and by such means as will leave them unimpaired for the enjoyment of future generations. Then there was an executive order in 1933 which transferred 56 national monuments and military sites from the Forest Service and the War Departments to the National Park Service. So up until that point, we had all these preserved spaces, Mm -hmm. but the same people weren't in charge of them. Okay. Uh, So we weren't consolidating those efforts. That that makes sense. So the War Department, that's obviously busy warring with things, is also trying to preserve like battlefields. Oh. And they just don't have... That it's they're not organized for both yeah. of those things, yeah. right? So they, with this act, they were the exec, sorry, the executive order. They were able to move everything that's being preserved as a site over into the National Park Service. Nice to the lovely people there. The next step was with the General Authorities Act of 1970. So we've jumped a bit. We went from 1933 all the way into 1970. It states that the national park system, which began with the establishment of Yellowstone National Park in 1872, has since grown to include superlative natural, historic, and recreational areas in every region. And that it's the purpose of this act to include all such areas in the system. So it was just another act to grab more of those sites Mm -hmm. and place them in the national park service perfect so they could all be taken care of by the same group of people makes sense so slowly we're just grouping all of those preservation sites into one and putting one group in charge of them and that's the national park service and they still do it yeah now you can get a little passport they're so much fun (laughs) and you can take it and the little park rangers there's sometimes they're little sometimes they're just people so they're whatever size people are true and they put a stamp in your passport for all the national parks you've been to so cute so here are some fun things about national parks that I found the smallest national park site is the Thaddeus Kosciuszko National Memorial um, memorials inside a narrow row house in Philadelphia. What? So this cat um, ends up living there because he comes back because the, the United States owes him money uh-huh. and he has to live somewhere 
while he gets paid. But it's the only known residence we have for him. So that's where his monument is. Oh, my God. That's amazing. (laughs) But Thaddeus was, in the words of Thomas Jefferson, the purest son of liberty I have ever known. Oh, (laughs) he was an engineer during the Revolutionary War. And he went like from fort to fort. And then um, he has a, a pretty fancy reputation like worldwide as a freedom fighter. Okay. Um, I think there's like a mountain named after him in Australia. What? He's a big deal. Wikipedia called him like a George Washington in Poland. But that seemed like not true. But he's a very impressive dude who's famous for, for fighting for good things. I love that. And so for a while, while we weren't paying him and he mm-hmm. needed his money... <laughs> he lived in a little, uh, he rented a room in Philadelphia, and now a, serv- a forest service ranger has to man that has post. To sit in that all day. And he swears that at least one person comes a day. At least. But it's a fun place, and that's where he works. Oh, I feel like I can relate to that a little bit. One park that I worked at, it was... At certain points of the season, you were hoping somebody came in because it was just boring and you just sat there all day, just, <laughs> just on your lawn so much. Sometimes sounds nice, but after a while, the same video and the same things that are available to you, because you don't really have cell service. Right. So you're just hanging out there, reading a book, hopefully. 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 It was a long, it was a long day. Other than that, just your own musings. Yeah. Which are, are repetitive and scary. <laughs> lead to existential crises none of us want to live through Um, unless they're boring which is better or worse who Mm -hmm. knows right anyways that's Thaddeus he's the tiniest one the only people who really visit his place are people who are big fangirls of national parks Mm -hmm. or revolutionary war buffs okay because not a lot of other people know about him right so if you're in Philadelphia check out Thaddeus he's got a teeny little section of books and postcards there oh so he's the real deal I love it the smallest national park, not site, is the Hot Springs National Park in Arkansas. Okay. Hot Springs National Park has 47 hot springs that spring from Hot Spring Mountain at 143 degrees Fahrenheit. I said springs so many times. It's only 5,550 acres, which means it would fit into the largest national park that I'll tell you about in a minute. 2,400 times. Oh, my God. So it's a baby. It's just and, a baby. And Alaska's so big. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> because the largest national park is Wrangell St. Elias National Park and Preserve in Alaska. Yellowstone, which we're all a lot more familiar with, is 2.2 million acres. Okay. Which is grande. It is yes. quite large. It would take six Yellowstones to fill the Wrangell St. Elias Park. Um, which contains 13.2 million acres. That blows my mind. It's a big one. That's crazy. real big. It's mostly busy in the summertime because it's difficult to access in the winter. That's fair. The roads get closed. And I believe that's when the polar bear people take over. Mm-hmm. It's yep. just polar bears that's everywhere. I wish it were. I think there's only like 12 polar bears in the world. And, and I guess if it is just them, they've got quite a bit of room. Yeah. Rangy. I saw a thing about um, how they think... That polar bears and grizzly bear grizzly bears have successfully made a new bear. Okay, it's kind of like not a brownie but a blondie. Oh, it's cute. Oh my but god! But I, I don't know if they're for sure he's about it yet. Okay, I but I hope so because I would like for the polar bear not to go away altogether. Right, even if we can just have something. Mm-hmm. But they're so hot. Yeah, they don't like it when the temperature's up this high. No, this isn't good for them. 
Um, if, if Seth could shift into an animal, you know, Seth, my true love. Yes. I was thinking about what animal that should be. Mm -hmm. And obviously polar bears, number one guess. That makes sense. They are, uh, hot all the time Mm -hmm. and love to be in the water. Two very Seth things. Uh Uh-huh. And they're like crazy strong, but they look super snuggly. That's, that's also Seth. That's yeah. him. So he's a polar bear, but if he wasn't a polar bear, Ooh. here's number two. Are you yes. ready? Also related to Yellowstone. <gasps> <laughs> I don't know if you know this about Seth. He's a big burly dude. He can just keep going for days. I've never seen him get tired on a hike. He just, he only needs like a fraction of the amount of sleep of other people. He just has an incredible amount of uh, keep goingness, mm-hmm. fortitude, stamina. Like, in my opinion, you know, those big, those big shouldered bison. Yes. And how they're just, I just imagine they just run across the Great Plains always. Mm-hmm. Yep. They just are not stopping. And they have a lot of good friends. Oh, yeah. And they like to be in huge groups of people. Yeah. And if they're not r- lounging in the sun, they're running. Pretty much. And that feels like Seth to me, too. That does feel like a Seth move. I like it. Yeah. Both of them, I like. I think those are good choices. Mm-hmm. Can, are there any animals that could turn it into two animals? I think you just get one. I think so. But, I mean, why limit ourselves? This is our thing now. Right. If I made it up, he can have two. Exactly. What he if, he, if he needs to ram something? Bison. Mm-hmm. If he needs to be a little more dexterous, bear. If he wants to swim in the water, bear. Oh, can you imagine? Can bison even float? <sighs> I don't know. What's that humpy part made of? Fat? Like a, like a camel? I feel like I should know. Maybe it's pretty buoyant. Could be. I mean, I know they cross rivers, but I'm not, I don't know if that's just because they're big. Well, and rivers in... If you're from the eastern United States. It's not the same thing. It's not. not the same you don't thing have at all. to swim across our rivers. You can usually wade across mm-hmm. most of them. Ours are like little trickles of water compared to what the mm-hmm. East Coast has. Especially late in the summer when oh, all yeah. the water's all gone because we used it to run Las Vegas. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's Seth is an animal. That's also the largest national park. The busiest national park. The one that sees the most visitors. Do you have a guess for what it is? I mean, just based off of the ones that I've been to, I'm going to say Yellowstone, but I know that's not the case. I thought it would be Yellowstone. I also guessed Zion because Zion has had like record breaking numbers recently. Yeah. It's actually the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Really? Mm -hmm. Great Smoky Mountains National Park is in Tennessee and North Carolina. Mm -hmm. It's one of the ones that I've been to. It's on my list. It's hella pretty. And a lot of people visit it because you have to go through it when you're on the Appalachian Trail. Okay. Which is an incredibly popular thing. I don't know how many people still do it. I imagine still tons of people Mm -hmm. do the Appalachian Trail from its very southern tip to its very northern tip, which is like the whole East Coast. Yeah. Which is similar to our... What's the one that she did in the Reese Witherspoon movie? What's that one? Is it called Pacific Coast? Pacific Crest Trail. The Pacific Crest Trail. The book is called Wild? I think it's just called Wild. It's a great book. It's one of those, if you're the kind of person who, if you can't relate to the main character, the book is not enjoyable for you, then first of all, stop doing that because there are a lot of different people and you're missing out on really cool books. Right. Uh, Second of all, this might be a tricky book for you, but maybe you'll get into it. And just remember that there's, there's commonality in all of us. So if you're not just like her, there's a part of you that is. Mm -hmm. And it's a great book. I'm Adding it to the list. And we've all had blisters on our feet. Absolutely. So there, we, we're all connected, at least in that way. It's true. 
Pacific Crest Trail. There are people on TikTok doing it right now. Crazy. It's a whole thing. They start in Mexico and they'll go all the way to Canada. That could be really fun. It sounds really fun. It sounds really hard. Yeah. (laughs) It also sounds like you have to be able to not go to work for like two full months. Yeah, I don't know how people do that. It's tricky. It would be really nice to be able to do something like Mm -hmm. that because I don't I don't know when we do it. There's just uh, there aren't a lot of jobs that can provide that kind of freedom. Right. I kind of like how I wonder when you go on The Bachelor. Mm-hmm. Does your job wait for you? Right. Do you get a new job? How does that I feel work? like a lot of the women on The Bachelor are real estate agents. So they could probably just work on the set. Right. Or they could just be off and not have any monies and then hop back in. Yeah. Because they might be self-employed or something. True. That does help. But it seems tricky. <laughs> it sure does. <laughs> <laughs> Additions to the national park system are generally made through acts of Congress. That's the only way like a national park park can be created. Okay. But the president also has the authority under the Antiquities Act, the Teddy Roosevelt one, Mm -hmm. 1906, to proclaim national monuments on land that's already under federal jurisdiction. Okay. The newest national park. Ooh. Are you ready for this? Yes. Again, shit changes. So might do a Google. The newest national park park is the New River Gorge National Park, which joined the band in December of 2020. And to the best of my knowledge, the newest national park site is the, um, I think, Amici. Okay. Because it's a, it's a Native American word, so not Amici, because that would be Greek. So the Amici National Historic Site in Colorado. It was originally known as the Granada Relocation Center and used as a detainment camp for Japanese Americans during World War II. Um, so here's a quick little bit from an article I read on Driving and Vibin. Ooh. <laughs> <dot> com. <laughs> Opened in 1942, more than 10,000 people were incarcerated there between 1942 and 1945. Uh, At its peak in 1943, over 7,300 Japanese Americans were were there. Two-thirds of them were American citizens. Um, And at the time, Amici became Colorado's 10th largest city. Because of all the people being wow. detained in the oh camp. Oh my goodness. The camp closed in 1945 and relocation began. Some some people went back to California, others stayed in the area, and these survivors helped to shine a light on the dark moment in our country's history. So why have we made it a national historic site? I will tell you. According to Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland, when you said two A's in a row, Haland Holland. Deb, my friend Deb. She's cool. I mean, in this. Gosh, I don't like to speak for any member. (laughs) As a nation, we must face the wrongs of our past in order to build a more just and equitable future. It's essential to continue to protect this place and speak about the painful chapter, this painful chapter of American history. National Park Service Director Chuck Sams said, It's our solemn responsibility as caretakers of America's national treasures to tell the whole story of our nation's heritage for the benefit of present and future generations. So that's a new park. You can go and visit it. Okay. 
there's been a local group of people who have been taking care of the area and facilitating tours of it and stuff for yeah. a long time. And they are still working with the National Park Service now that it's a national site yeah. to provide those things. So it's a place you can go and visit. A lot of the original structures aren't there, but there's a dormitory and a couple of other things. You can go there and learn a little bit more about what happened during World War II to a lot of Japanese Americans. Yeah. And understand a little bit more about our country's history and the history of a lot of people and families who live here still. But that's important. That's good. It is. It is. And it's way cool to, for all kinds of Americans to be represented in America's national sites. Exactly. I think that's important stuff too. I made a list of how many national parks I've been to, and I have a lot of work to do. (laughs) I will, now that you said there's like over 430. Yeah, but 63 park parks, which I think is doable. I think that is doable. I am not close to that number at all. No. (laughs) Plus, to get to all 63, I think you have to go to like the Virgin Islands and American Samoa and like. Which I'm not opposed to. Puerto Rico. It just takes a little more effort. Yeah. So it's a little, you have to save up more miles. Yeah. So there's a lot of space to cover. (laughs) That's true. Plus, Alaska's terrifying as we discussed. Yeah. So I'm going to need an actual mountain man. Absolutely. Uh, Or a. They didn't have, did they have, you know what? New episode idea. Find out if there's a mountain woman. Absolutely. We're going to do that. And we could, we could include some cool stuff on Sacagawea because she's a badass. She is. Have you ever watched uh, like history channel stuff on her where the, the historians call her Sacagaway? Yeah. Yes. And I mean, if that's how you pronounce her name for reals, my bad. But but having grown up in the American West, where we I feel like we're we're, we decently say the right names of some places. Right. (laughs) Occasionally. They're like, we try. Sacagawea is what we always said. Mm -hmm. And if it's been Sacagawea this whole time. I'm going to be so sad. Jiminy Cricket. Right. And Sacagawea is really fun to say. It is. It's right there with Patroclus for me. That's, mm-hmm. yep. Really fun to say things. So here's the national parks I've been to. Perfect. <laughs> I've been to Glacier National Park in Montana. Okay. Which is fucking amazing. It's beautiful. You it's should go there. It's so pretty. Yellowstone, Obvi, mm-hmm. Zion. Yes. Well, that's the one I've been to most recently. I was there last summer. Bryce Canyon, um, Redwood National Park. I Love thought Redwood. I thought I'd been to Sequoia. I had to check and see which one I'd been to. Oh, okay. Sequoia's uh, further south yes. in California. So I've been to the Redwood one. And um, Grand Teton National Park, uh, which is uh, in Wyoming. Mm-hmm. And Seth didn't know this, so now I don't know if it's true. <laughs> oh, no. I grew up being told that Teton was like an like a like an indigenous word for boobies. Oh, it's super boobies. And there's two like matching peaks, but not quite matching. No, they're lopsided boobies. Just as just as mammaries don't always match. Exactly. Uh, the Grand Tetons, the big titties. Oh no, that's so I. That's legitimate, right? I taught a lot of people that when I worked at Mesa Falls National. Nope, it was a Forest Service thing. But we, everybody came in and asked for facts and we always had to talk about, they were always like, what's the most interesting thing? And we said, the name means boobies. Yep. (laughs) They're just a real big pair of tits. (laughs) It's a great name. It is. Well, and somebody was horny and I get it. And they're beautiful. It's a beautiful park. It's a, they're a gorgeous mountain range. Everything about it is beautiful. Really, really lovely. Mm -hmm. And I've also been to Smoky Mountains National Park. Nice. 
So one, two, three, four, five, seven. Nice. Seven parks. I think I've been to about the same, just some different ones. You've been to, have you been to all five Utah ones? Yes. Nice. Yes. <laughs> I'm like, I had to, I had to count how many have I been to. Yes. I'm going to more this fall when we go to Moab. Yeah. We're going to go to Canyonlands. Absolutely. Um, I've never been to the Grand Canyon. I haven't either. We are close enough that that's embarrassing. It's really, how did that happen? Let's, how did I go this long? Let's Grand Canyon road trip sometime. I think we're going to have to. We have a lot of fabulous uh, field trips that we need to take. Oh, absolutely. I love it. That I feel like we have to do fun. episodes on the field trips that we take too. That sounds great. It'd be great. I love that idea. Um, one of the other most visited national parks is the Golden Gate National Park site, mm-hmm. which is just Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah. Which is a really incredible thing to see. So um, if you're thinking, oh, I've never been to any of those, you probably have. You probably have. You probably have. Do a little bit of a look about it and see how many you've been to. Not just the of the 63 parks, but there are tons of national park sites. Like right. the, the Lincoln Monument is a national park site. Yeah. And there are tons and tons and tons. And like I was saying earlier, there's so many different types. Your local riverbed might be one. You it's don't know yet. It's entirely possible. Give it a check out. And if it is, how cool for you. Right? You did it. You've been to some cool stuff. Which state has the most national parks? And see, I was going to say Utah, but I feel like that's not right either. Probably Alaska, right? I, that was my second guess, too. It's the big one, but not the one. It's the, the big one. Hmm. Now that's confusing. <laughs> it's got the most land dedicated, but not the most number. Or no, not even that. Uh, um, Alaska has the most land, I would say, for sure. The state with the most national park parks, that's what we're calling them, Mm -hmm. is California. Really? They have nine. Wow. And California is uh, too big to be a state. Yeah. I feel like California and Texas would do, I think the people there would be happier. They'd be more represented if they could just split that shit up. Split things up a little bit. It's part of my divide America into four different countries plan. Uh, I like it. I'm for it. If you're interested, government, I can CC you on that. Yes. <laughs> CC the president. <laughs> um, the second second most, Alaska has eight. Okay. And we are number three with five. That makes sense. Colorado has four. I don't think anybody else has more than four. Okay. So that's pretty cool. That is really I cool. I thought we had the most. I did too. We have a ton of government-owned land in our state. And I think that's why I thought so mm-hmm. much of that was the case. But not all of them are national parks. There's a yeah. lot of state parks, a lot of different things. Yeah. We have we're, we have tons of state parks, a lot of BLM land. Yep. And then a lot of preserves, nature preserves. Exactly. We actually live really close to a, a, a bird preserve. We do. Just huge. I love it. And very cool. It's a cool thing to live by. Right? My father-in-law used to hunt ducks there. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) He used to hunt pheasants where my house is. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) When it was an empty field many moons ago. Nothing here. (laughs) Uh, So those are some cool things about national parks. I'm really excited to uh, show you how insanely I've gotten invested in Yellowstone. I'm really excited. In a future episode. It's going to be a great episode. We're not doing any more single episodes. We're going to figure out a way to do this with both of us. They are cursed. cursed. But Yellowstone, it has everything. It does. It's so cool. (laughs) Remember Stefan from Saturday Night Live? Yes. It has has 
everything. <laughs> That's Yellowstone. <laughs> it's got shit for the sci-fi people, for the nature people, for just rocks people, mm-hmm. for people who have serious soapboxes about wolves, yep. which are us. Yes. It's got something for everyone. It really does. It is a cool place. Um, I'm really glad we have national parks. Me too. Do we take a break now? Yeah, or do I we think just we should do take it? a break. Okay. Take a quick break. Shani will come back and tell us about our favorite national park. You'll never guess what it is. (laughs) (laughs) See you in a minute. Okay, guys. I'm so excited. Oh, my God. (laughs) I'm ridiculous. So we decided we were going to do national parks, and I was like, okay, you can't do Canyonlands. You've (laughs) talked enough about Canyonlands. That was your first mistake. Yeah, it was. Because as soon as I said I can't, guess what I did? Canyonlands. I read so much shit about Canyonlands, and I just love it. It makes everything that I love about Canyonlands that much more interesting. You guys are probably going to listen to me talk and say, oh, my God. But I love it. I think that um, a lot of people have seen pictures of Canyonlands. You're aware of Canyonlands loosely. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe you don't know that you know. And, I and so people, you. I think this will be really interesting information. I'm oh, excited yeah. about it. I guarantee you, you've seen pictures of it. Mm-hmm. Whether you know it or not, you've seen pictures of it. It, it could have been in Planet of the place. Apes. Oh, yeah. I can't remember which ones were. I'm sure it was. Pirates of the Caribbean was the Salt Flats. So that's yeah. definitely not there. No. <laughs> <laughs> I just, you've, whether you know it or not, you've seen it. Uh-huh. It's, ah, it's beautiful. It's iconic. It really is. And it just will always, I've said this before and I'll say it again. It is a magical place. It's magical to me every single time I go. It takes my breath away. It is, it is a place that will always hold the most special place in my heart. I want to read this, even though my turn's over, because no, you just it. made me think about it. This, he's talking about Yellowstone, but he's saying what you're saying. His name was um, Osborne Russell. Okay. And he wrote this in 1835 on one of the exhibitions in Yellowstone. He said, there's something in the wild scenery of this valley, which I cannot describe, but the impressions made upon my mind while gazing from a high eminence on the surrounding landscape one evening as the sun was gently gliding behind the western mountain and casting its gigantic shadows across the vale were such as time can never efface. For my own part, I almost wished I could spend the remainder of my days in a place like this, where happiness and contentment seem to reign in wild romantic splendor. That is incredibly true. I've spent... This is a weird way to put it, but the first time I went to Canyonlands was with Brian. And it was after a really, really tough period in my life. Mm-hmm. And I'd spent so many years previous feeling like a secondary character in life in general. Yeah. And it was this first trip that Brian and I went on. And it was the first time that I felt both so important to this one person that I was with, but so much part of something bigger that I don't matter, but I do matter. And it just, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it was a beautiful time for me. It was a really beautiful time. And there are times like that now where I still, I feel like a secondary character in my life. And we go back to this place and it just brings back these feelings of everything's fine. Everything's Mm -hmm. beautiful. Everything's gorgeous and exactly how it's supposed to be. In a world where there's a Canyonlands, there's also a Shannon. Right. And if those two things exist in the same place, they must both be really important. But yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's so this this place is this place is magic this place is my place that I would be every day if I could be (laughs) so I highly highly recommend that you all go at least once in your life if you ever want to understand what the color purple is you Mm -hmm. have to see a sunset in these mountains it's true or you just don't get it. Sorry. Sorry. You, I'm sure you know stuff about other stuff, but not purple. Not purple. And not red. And Mm-mm. not how many different shades of green exist in the world. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> okay. So what I wanted to do first is discuss what was happening in the park before it was actually a park. Because, obviously, we weren't the first ones here. Very we good We weren't the first ones who knew what this was like. So, and there's so much evidence for this. So the first thing that I'm going to talk about is we're going to go back about 10,000 years. Well, that's a couple. It's a few. (laughs) And this is when the hunter-gatherer civilizations reigned in the world, just in general. So Canyonlands was an area roved by these communities that offered resources for food, water, and shelter. I mean, look at those rocks. Of course, you're going to be having Mm -hmm. a barrier from what the world is. Now, granted, then it wasn't all of these rocks, but still, there it was, it was still very similar to what it was now. Right. Um, There's still evidence to this day, including pictographs. Pictographs are rock paintings and petroglyphs are rock engravings. Mm -hmm. Evidence of both still exists and they show evidence of the lives that these people lived on just a day to day basis, which is really cool to go and see. It's in all sorts of different areas of the park. They're some of the most famous pictographs and petroglyphs in the world. Yes. And it's all over in that area. So mm -hmm. not even just Canyonlands, but Capitol Reef is a really good place to go look for these things as well. Dinosaur bones, too. Yes. (laughs) Utah's so cool. (laughs) Oh, my God. And then about 2,000 years later is when the American Indians start to make a presence here. Life became a little bit easier. Hunting and gathering didn't really become a thing as much. They were farmers at this point. They were tilling the land. They grew corn, they grew beans, they grew squash, and everything that they had, it was so easily supplemented with just small game and just nuts and seeds around the area. Excellent. Life became just a little more easier. Because there are there a lot of large game down there? Not really. Because it gets pretty deserty. It does. So yeah. they have some deer. Um, but it is, it's a desert, so it's small, small mammals, Mm -hmm. mostly. And the fact that they were able to leave, live a more sedentary lifestyle meant that they got to stay in this place. They didn't have to go rove miles upon miles upon miles all around the area. They got to live in one section and really establish themselves. Yeah. Two groups in particular did this and they began to overlap a little bit. They get distinct parts of their own civilizations but they they were together and it was the fremont era people and the puebloans evidence can still be found in various sections of the park of the lives that they led during this time period over time starting around 1300 the puebloan communities in the park began to head south toward arizona new mexico and this was likely due to the drought right because again desert and as time goes on inevitably that just becomes more and more pronounced and still more and more all the time all the time <laughs> all the time some sites in canyonlands continue to hold importance to these puebloan communities and the park staff attempt to preserve these sites in accordance with their traditions which i think is really cool yes i think that's really really nice 
The Fremont-era people, however, decided to stay in the area in spite of drought conditions, returning to more of a hunter-gatherer lifestyle as opposed to farming. Some of the local Ute and Paiute communities believe that they are descendants from the Fremont-era and Puebloan communities that resided here. Makes sense. Right? I can see that. The Navajo also immigrated into the area around the same time, around 1300 to 1500. Pictograph evidence also shows possible proof of Spanish influence in the Navajo communities with the inclusion of horses and pictographs made around 1500. I mean, when you think about it, grand scheme of things, not that far from Mexico. No, not at all. So it wouldn't be too, it's not not a huge stretch of the imagination to see that the Spanish influence would have come up that far by by that time. It's interesting to go around and see the way that they drew different things. I believe it was, was it a bear paw print? I'm trying to think. There's a, there's a rock in one section of Canyonlands that's called Newspaper Rock, and I believe it's bear paw prints, and they draw it with an extra, with an extra digit on their hands. It's interesting. And then you do, you see all of the horses drawn on there as well. It's a really interesting place. The one that's the most iconic to me is the tr- man with the triangle torso. Yep. Like, that's the one I f- see first in my brain. That's on that super famous, really, really large. Yes. Um, Petri- Petroglyph. Petro. Yeah. I guess it depends on if it was engraved or painted. I think that one's engraved. So Petri- Petroglyph. Petroglyph. Yes. I know about stalactites and stalagmites. Right. Because stalactites stalactites come from the ceiling and they have to hang on really tight. And stalagmites come from the ground because they have to push up with all their might. That's so cute. (laughs) (laughs) That one's locked in from like the second grade. Never going anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. All right. So after we had, after we have some of the Spanish influence come in, that's when we start seeing English settlers start to come in as well. For most European explorers, Canyonland seemed an uncrackable nut, and they relied heavily on the past created by American Native Americans of the area, which makes sense. These guys knew what they were doing, and these European explorers are like, oh, I don't know, it looks cool, but what the hell? They don't have the right shoes. No. Like, they haven't been invented by white people yet. Right. And can you imagine, like, a buckskin shoe scrambling compared to, mm. like, a leather made shoe by by like a what do you call a shoemaker uh talk about the shoes though like like a leather made assembled shoe that's like Uh slippery yeah compared to these buckskin shoes that we know that indigenous people were wearing at the time grip a little bit better so much more like a mountain climbing shoe right and so these people would show up they're just not equipped for, for this kind of land no they don't know what to do with it exactly so it makes sense that they would try and rely on some of the tips and tricks yeah. from the people who have been here. And if we could have stuck with just that. That would have been great. <laughs> we should have stopped there. <laughs> the first Europeans to really dig in and explore Canyonlands territory were likely trappers searching the rivers of the area for beaver and otter. Yeah. Utah's had so many different kinds of like fauna. Oh, yeah. Like just so much. So much. <laughs> The Macomb Expedition of 1859 explored around in what is now known as the Needles District, which we'll talk a little bit more about. It's a really cool area of the park. And it's it looks like its name. Oh, it's a <laughs> bunch of needles. <laughs> Just rock needles hanging out. 
Um, John Wesley Powell is one of the most famous explorers who headed up a three-month exploration along the Green and Colorado Rivers. Before reaching the Grand Canyon, Powell mapped the canyons and recorded inf information about the natural and cultural history of the area, which was published in 1895 as the exploration of the Colorado and its canyons. I love a nice, straightforward title. I do, too. It's easy to know what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. I'm for it. When I see you in the card catalog, I know you're the one I'm looking for. Exactly. I don't have to make any guesses here. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, when we talk about Utah and discovering things and settling things, of course, the Mormons come in. Don't they always? Don't they always? So in the later part of the 19th century, Mormon settlers moved into the area. Primarily, they focused on ranching, farming, and prospecting opportunities, which really goes into what the park was in a very big way before it was a park. It was such a big place for mining and ranching. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Big time. For nearly a century, from the 1880s to the 1970s, local ranchers used much of Canyonlands for winter pasture, which makes sense. It doesn't get very cold. It's a really temperate place for the most part. Cowboys explored the canyons, searching for good graze and water. They constructed trails and roads to move their stocks across rugged terrain, such as Schaefer and Murphy Trails, an island in the sky. And these places are so cool as well. You guys should go there. Schaefer and Murphy Trail are awesome. You can see examples of primitive cowboy camps like the camp at Cave Spring throughout the park. So Cave Spring is another spot that you should definitely go to. Very cool. Is this this is the same place where it was really easy to get lost. And that's why Butch, Cassidy and Sundance had their hideaway in Canyonlands. Mm -hmm. Yep, we've been yeah. there. We hiked there. It's so cool. Is it a tricky one to get to? Um, it's at the top of one of the really sketchy So kind of. It's a little um, tricky. Yeah, so you... You have to have a four-wheel drive vehicle to get to it because you have to be able to ride a good portion of the way along what is called the White Room Road, which okay. requires four-wheel drive. It's impossible to go without it. And it's at the top of one of, I believe it's at the top of Hardscrabble Hill. Or is it at the top of Murphy Hogback? There's two really big kills on that road. <laughs> they are scary as hell. <laughs> that was the whole point of it. They wanted, they had to get to a place where other people weren't interested in going. And so they would give up. Exactly. And so you are, you're at the top of this big hill and then it is, it's a decent amount of hiking. It's a, it was a long way out there. It was really cool. We've got pictures of it. It's, it's remote. A lot of it's originally explored by cowboys, at least on horseback. Yeah. Which makes a lot of sense. Oh, because, for sure. Because it's not really, it's not like a rollerblading place. No. <laughs> People do mountain bike. But yeah. It's, it's pretty it's rugged. It's a strenuous biking mm -hmm. experience for sure. Ranching was important business throughout the 20th century in all three major districts of the park. There are four districts, but we'll talk about that in a second. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it continued for 10 years after the park was created. You'll And you'll still see around surrounding areas that it's still... A big part of life there. Mm -hmm. um, roads and trails were built for other uses. American's nuclear arms race in the 1950s created a high demand for uranium, which is in abundance in this area. That's so interesting because they also did like nuclear testing in, in southern Utah. Oh, for sure. So we're super tied to a lot of that. Oh, yeah, completely. Wow. Completely. I, didn't, I didn't know we had uranium. We do. Geologists thought that Utah's canyon country contained significant amount of the metal, but the rugged terrain made it difficult. The Atomic Energy Commission encouraged prospectors with monetary incentives and built almost 1,000 miles of road in southeast Utah. The now popular White Rim Road at Island in the Sky started this way. 
Oh, wow. So it's really cool. And you can tell, you can still see out there just evidence of so much of this. Uh, for the first time, much of Canyonlands could be seen from a car after this. Um, this, plus the development of the interstate highway system to open the door for increased tourism to the area and eventually the creation of a national park, Ooh. which is where we're getting to now. <laughs> Sorry, you guys. I'm going to be so long winded about this this week. You're going to love it. It's going to be great. You're going to love it. It's great so far. So let's talk about how it actually became a park. Let's get into that. So the government interest in the area that now encompasses all of Canyonlands National Park began back in the 1930s. The area was already pretty well known to the national park system since Arches is just a, like, you could toss a stone and it's mm -hmm. right there. Mm -hmm. Arches was there around 1929 is when Arches came about and then discussions were had about, well, there's more. Mm -hmm. But decisions, because this is the American government, weren't necessarily made quickly. <laughs> right. And, and it wasn't going anywhere as far as they knew. Exactly. I mean, it really is remote. It's not like people are going to be going crazy about going there, especially mm -hmm. in the 30s. Yeah. Interest continued throughout the 40s and the 50s, but it wasn't until the end of the 50s that the idea of Canyonlands really began to develop into a plan of action. And we have former Arches National Monument Superintendent Bates Wilson to thank for it. Thanks, Bates. Thanks, Bates. <laughs> So he was particularly taken by the area that is visible from the Grand Viewpoint Overlook, and it's not difficult to understand why. For this week's socials, I will post a picture of mine and Brian's wedding. <laughs> it was from this overlook that we got married. And, and it seems like stupid close to the edge, but I promise they were being safe. <laughs> we were being safe, I promise. <laughs> but we'll post it so you can understand. It's this view is breathtaking. Mm -hmm. It really is. And it goes on forever. You you can't see an end. It just goes and goes and goes. Canyons, <sighs> spires, wonderfully unique rock formations, a white rock rim contrasting with a deep red rock underneath it, mm -hmm. all dotted with plants that at any given season cover every cover color imaginable. Yeah. It's ridiculous. I... It's not a stretch of the mind to understand why he was so taken with this. You, I don't think that it's, you don't really understand all the things that a sagebrush can be until you've, you've been in Southern Utah for right. a minute. Like it can be annoying and itchy, but it can also be so gorgeous. It is beautiful. And it's one of the most primitive of the plants that you'll find. Oh yeah. So you think nothing lives here in a desert, um, but actually just really unique, beautiful things live in the desert. That's exactly what it is. Oh, my God. It's beautiful. Wilson stepped into action and took government officials on guided Jeep tours across the landscape and camping in the area at night. He engaged in what was described by one official as Dutch oven diplomacy because they were eating Dutch oven meals. <laughs> Honestly, I've been thinking about that lately. Like, we, we grew up eating way more Dutch oven food than we do now. We need right. to make a fucking cobbler. 100 percent. That sounds amazing. I love myself a good peach cobbler. Right. Mm. And some... Vanilla ice cream. Mm. God, I'm hungry. Yep. yep. <laughs> yes, please. Obviously, Dutch oven diplomacy worked. Yeah. <laughs> of course, they're eating peach cobbler going, you know what? Yeah, this makes sense. And Never seen it fail. Never seen it fail once. <laughs> <laughs> so, Secretary of State Stuart Udall, Udall, 
Hmm. One of those went back to Congress and said that this site truly was worthy of the National Park Distinction and Protection. So on September 12th, 1964, President Lyndon B. Johnson signed Public Law 88-590, establishing 257,640 acres as Canyonlands National Park. Congress expanded Canyonlands to its current size in 1971, but much of the original area envisioned by Bates-Wilson was not included and remains unprotected. Ooh. And that's wildly true. So every section of the park kind of has its own entrance. So you can't actually get to each district of the park from like from each other. So you can't go to Island in the Sky and get to Needles. You can't go to Needles and get to the maze. So you have to go in, back out, in again mm-hmm. through different and entrances. Some of the entrances are hundreds of miles apart. Right. So it's it's huge. And you don't get to say you get to see the entirety of Canyonlands National Park in one trip typically. You're gonna have to plan like one district is one year. One district is the next time we come and visit. It's You can't just plan on doing most of it in one trip. We're generally willing to go. So if you're on your way, uh, just let us know. Okay. Um, <laughs> like just any old time. If you guys are passing through Utah for the first time, we'll meet you we'll, up. We'll go. We'll go. When I say Brian and I have already been to Canyonlands three times this year. <laughs> three times this year. So we're always down. Absolutely. Always down. Okay, this is the part where the little nerd in me got really excited. (laughs) We're going to talk about the geology, because obviously when we're talking Southern Utah, geology is the big topic. I nerded out. (laughs) So I'm not going to go on for hours and hours and hours about how these rock formations developed and everything like that. But I am going to go on a little bit. I'm really sorry. (laughs) The right amount. You'll feel it. The right amount. So the how and why of rock formations in Canyonlands is honestly really pretty interesting. I'm going to give you a brief background. So there are two main processes that I'm going to talk to you guys about that really impacted and influenced the rocks that you see today. The first one is deposition. This is how we actually got the different layers of rock here in the first place. Okay. The sedimentary rock, it makes up the majority of the formations around the area, and this These rocks were brought here basically from rocks that were hundreds of miles away. And it happened hundreds of millions of years ago. By glaciers? Glaciers are part of it. A lot of what happened here in southern Utah, one big thing was tectonic plate movement. Oh. So as North America made its migration to its current location, things really began to drastically change. For a time, currently what is southeastern Utah was actually flooded by ocean water. And then on top of that, you've got rivers crisscrossing across the area. You've got mud flats because, you know, of course, those rivers flood and the ocean will draw away from certain sections. And is this really, a Lake Bonneville area as well? Or is it too far south? It might be a little too far south. I haven't considered it's really that close to Lake Bonneville. Map. Yeah. It was really wet. Now it's real dry. Now it's real dry. And that's Utah. And I want to like, so like the thing to talk about here is like at that point in time where we're flooded by ocean, it's a tropical environment. Which Utah is so was crazy tropical. to imagine. Right? <laughs> it's so weird. That's probably why we were so good at dinosaurs though. Exactly. They like it a little humid. They really do. Mossy even. Yeah. So compare that to the desert climate that we have today. We've been we've been so many different things. So oh, crazy. Evolution of the world. 
Exactly. So take all of these things and each of these sources provided layer upon layer upon layer of sediment, the red and white sandstone containing iron rich deposits from the mountains that were nearby. It looks like when you make a really flaky pastry. Yeah. It looks like like somebody's really laminated that butter perfectly. Perfectly. And it just just flaky rock. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. It really is. That's exactly what this is. Quick reminder for all of us that all of these layers were relatively flat when they were actually deposited. It was only relatively speaking in geological terms that things eroded in such a way that the current landscape was created. And so that brings us to process number two, which is erosion. Approximately 15 million years ago, Canyonlands was pretty much entirely at sea level. Combined volcanic activity, local uplifts, and movements in Earth's crust resulted in the entire area rising to over 5,000 feet above sea level. Shit was tumultuous. Shit was wild and bumpy. Oh my goodness. Craziness. It was this uplifting activity that shifted the norm from depositing of materials to the erosion of the layers that were already present. The Colorado and Green Rivers cut large canyons of their own, and then of course sediment-filled storm runoffs and rivers and just little tiny creeks did their own scouring of the surrounding landscape and turned it into what is now the tributary canyons and the different washes in the area it's and you see many you experience many versions of it every time there's a big rainstorm down there they experience a lot of flash floods in those canyons scary and and you can imagine how suddenly there's so much water and it changes the way that the the topography looks exactly and it's just on a little teeny level it's just a little rainstorm it's just a little rainstorm but when you watch it so especially this isn't really here but this is the same thing but there's a ton of canyoneering in zion Mm -hmm. and you are told you better know what the weather is for the day and because we do it all the time we go canyoneering and if you see rain in that forecast you're not going your trip's canceled and it's because for it, good reason. It's shocking how fast. It fills up so fast and the water moves so, so quickly. Mm-hmm. You will be drowned in an instant. It was just end of last summer when they had such massive floods at Zion that there was inches of red mud inside the visitor center. Oh, yeah. And it just you just don't really know what kind of storm is going to cause what kind of flood. You just don't go you on bad days. You just don't mess with it. But when you do see it. You understand. It makes sense how all of this got cut out into the way that it is now. Of course, it took a long time, but it it makes perfect sense. It helps you really understand the phrase force of nature. Yes. Like it moves. It goes. All right. So the white rim sandstone, so the really white colored one, not the red one that you think of most often for southern Utah, but in Canyonland specifically, there's what's called the white rim sandstone. Mm -hmm. It's white in color. It's notorious in the area and tends to be more erosion resistant and can protect a weaker layer of shale until only a thin spire remains. Examples of such standing rocks can be seen in both Island in the Sky and the Maze Districts. It's really crazy to see these just tall, gigantic things that you're thinking, how has this not tipped over already? <laughs> because the the rock can be different in, in a matter of feet. Yep. So the softer rock has been washed away and the harder rock is remaining. remaining. And it is weird as hell. It's wild to look at. And that so that's how this happens. It's just there's a stronger, more water resistant layer at the top that's protecting all of this rock below it. And so obviously things around it fall away, mm-hmm. leaving just these spires. It's crazy. It's so weird. 
Floods and rivers aren't the only erosion method at play. The expansion of freezing water is also a notorious source of erosion in the area, which you brought up glaciers. Yes, Mm -hmm. huge. And still a little bit of a situation um, in Utah's high deserts. Yes. When the elevation gets high enough, the desert is winter. It's cold. And so the water there, what water there is there, expands Expands in the same way. Expands and freezes. So as ice loosens, surface material and everything else widens and cracks and becomes vulnerable to the next big storm. And I'm going to read a quote from the usparks.com page. It's really interesting. This I had never heard of, and it makes perfect sense. So another significant factor in the shaping of canyonlands is the paradox formation. A layer of seawater evaporates from the Pennsylvanian period, which is a geological period in time. Okay. Deeply buried, the salts in this layer can liquefy under the weight of the overlying rock, flowing like toothpaste away from the source of greatest overburden. In response, the upper layers may bow up, creating a salt dome, or erode and collapse, creating a salt valley. A lot of those salt domes are what happen- where we have salt mines throughout mm-hmm. the world now. Exactly. This phenomenon is especially visible in the needles, where parallel rock cracks or joints formed in the surface rocks as buried layers slumped towards Cataract Canyon. These cracks are perpendicular to an older system of cracks created by the monument uplift. The resulting cross-hatched pattern of joints has eroded so that great blocks of sandstone have been reduced to thin spires of rock. Wow. It's really weird. I nerded out. I stopped here. I didn't want to bore you all with geology. I, The rock collector in me as a child is just geeking out about this loves it well and there's a, there's a certain part of everybody when you see something like that you think how did this happen how did this work then it, it makes and it's if you nonsense go here, it makes no sense it is absolute utter nonsense and it's amazing but it's it's weird it's really weird it's very cool it's a cool place it's so cool all right you want to learn about some of the animals that you guys might see there yes i got into that too <laughs> <laughs> so there are a few different kinds. One is amphibians. So there's a variety of species of frogs, toads, and then there's one single species of a salamander that can be found in the different districts of the park, which is oh. pretty cool. Birds are everywhere. Mm-hmm. Absolutely everywhere. It's a very bird, bird-friendly zone. It really is. And it's the most visible of all the animal life that you're going to see in the park. There are over 237 species known to be found in the area. Some of which are turkeys, vultures, white-throated swifts, juncos, white-crowned sparrows, the great blue heron. There's so many. It's not a very well-known spot for bird watching, and I don't know why. So if you like that bird surprises watching, me. right? It's crazy. It's not well known at all. So if you guys like bird watching, you should go to Canyonlands, mm-hmm. research where all the different ones are, because obviously, depending on what kind of like what kind of plant life happens to be there because of how the rocks block light or don't block light or where the rivers are at. It's different everywhere in the park. Migration seasons, exactly. all kinds of things. So find what you want to see. You There are 237 different things you can go see. It's beautiful. It's amazing. And the birds really are the things that you get to see the most there. Oh, cool. It's so cool. If you can fly, uh, it'd be a neat place to live. So I get it. I, it's so funny because we'll drive, we'll do little drives along some of the roads and you'll just watch the birds playing. They'll literally <laughs> just like dive down and then ride the updraft back up and then coast for a little bit and then dive <laughs> down and ride the updraft back up. It's show offs. They are showing off and you can tell them, they're just playing. They're having fun. That's this is so them great. just having a good time. <laughs> It looks amazing, and I wish I could do it. Mm -hmm. It's fine. 
Um, fish. So the native species in Canyonlands are primarily chub, minnows, and suckers, and many of these are not found anywhere else. Um, some of some other ones that are really rare are the Colorado pike minnow. It's also called a squawfish. Oh. Uh, razorback and flannel mouth suckers, as well as the flannel mouth, flannel mouth, <laughs> flannel mouth suckers. <laughs> and then there's also humpback and bony tail chubs. <laughs> Just to name a few. <laughs> there are approximately 40 non-native species that are now found in the area, and they do tend to dominate the native species at this point, which makes sense because there mm. weren't that many native species. Yeah. Mammals are everywhere. We've talked about the fact that small man- small mammals seem to be the most suited to desert life. Mostly scurrying things is what yes. you see in the desert. So there are actually nine species of mice and rats alone, but there are rodents of all kinds like beaver, bighorn sheep are a big one. Mm-hmm. Less commonly seen mammals, larger versions, you can see mountain lions and you can see black bears. If you're going to see them, it's likely where there's also deer in the area. They will probably be following the deer. Mm-hmm. They are not commonly seen. I have never seen one in my life there. It'll have to be a maybe a hot, 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 hot summer where there's nothing else to eat. Exactly. But uh, that doesn't seem super common. Not, not common at all. We'll get into plant life a little bit. So obviously there are a lot of cacti around and there are 11 different species found in canyon lands although the so the seguro cactus is the most common in the uh american southwest mm-hmm. it's not found in canyon lands yeah the iconic one with the bendy arms yep that's pretty much an arizona cactus pretty much so definitely not found here there are a lot of different grasses there are two different kinds there's bunch grasses, so the ones that form in small clumps and you just find them sporadically in the landscape. Mm-hmm. And then there is sod forming. Oh. So kind of like what you think of for our lawns here. Okay. It doesn't look like our lawns, but it does the same thing where it just all bunches up together and it's just this large swath of grass. Mm-hmm. There are a bunch of different species. I'm not going to go into all of them. It's not worth it in my opinion. Just know you may see areas where it's a bunch of them. That's one kind. You may see it sporadically throughout the landscape. That's a different kind. (laughs) Shrubs and trees. uh, You're going to see a lot of just pines. You're going to see a lot of juniper is a huge one. Juniper is a big one. And just a lot of things just juniper adjacent. Yeah. So if you think juniper, think adjacent to that. That's the kind of plant life you're going to get into. What I want to talk about, though, as far as plant life goes, and I'm sorry, I'm going to get on a box. It's going to happen because this is important. (laughs) This is very important. If you are going to go into any desert climate park at all, you need to keep an eye out for this. And it's called cryptobiotic soil. First, Let's talk about the name because we always get into the etymology of a word. <laughs> we love That's that That's just shit. what this show does. <laughs> so crypto means hidden and biota means life. So this literally translates to hidden life. Ooh. It's really, it's really cool. So from the naked eye, it just looks like crusty black dirt. And it does look really basic, but there is so, so much more to this. Biological soil crust is a living soil that's comprised mostly of cyanobacteria, as well as lichen, moss, fungi, and other bacteria. Cyanobacteria, aka green-blue algae, are one of the oldest life forms known to man. It's said that this is one of the first organisms to colonize Earth, and it's one of the major contributors to cultivating fertile soil across the globe. 
The cyanobacteria originally turned carbon dioxide-rich environment into healthy oxygen, which allowed for other life forms to survive, a.k.a. us. It's everybody's mom. It's everybody's mom. It's actually been dubbed the protector of the desert. <gasps> yes. That's just really, it's romantic. It is. For that fancy alive dirt. Right. So this web of dirt and bacteria and everything is what fuses soil particles together, creating a thick, hard layer for new growth, which also helps prevent erosion. So it's helping to keep what we have here, here. I did not know about this. It's huge. I've learned similar things about what you don't step on or touch when you're at the ocean. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, nobody had ever taught me this about the desert. This is so, 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 so important. Yeah. So important. This function helps to regulate water runoff, reduce evaporation. It's just, it's... It's the defender of the desert. It's really what it is. <laughs> Research show that large sections of western United States have damaged crust layers due to increasing recreational and commercial use of desert areas. As a result, this increase in human activity and disturbance to the crust could lead to significant damage and just cause total destruction of it. Mm. When damaged... This is important, and I want you to listen to this. When damaged, the colony of organisms could take several hundred to 5,000 plus years to recolonize and reform in arid places. Oh, wow. Basically, it can be irreparably damaged just by the stomp of the foot. It's so sensitive. It really is. So what do you do? Obviously, we're in a national park. You have designated trails, and this is true of everywhere in the area. Most places have designated trails that they want you to go on. Stay on the trail. You Sometimes people think that stepping off isn't going to be a big deal, that it's just me. Like, I can go to this riverbed and come back on wherever I want to go. It's fine. It's just me. It's not just you. This turns into what are called social trails, and this completely changes the landscape. Mm-hmm. So... Number one, stay on the trails. Number two, a lot of times, especially in canyon lands when you go areas, trails aren't always clearly defined. Stay to the slick rock. So stay to where it doesn't look like loose dirt. It looks like solid rock. Because then you know nothing lives there. Nothing lives on that. Mm -hmm. It's in the loose dirt that these are going to be forming and that these are going to be growing and creating and providing all of the nutrients and things that we need here and keeping the ground stuck to the rock so that it, like the ecosystem doesn't just wash away in the rain exactly just so easy to do there exactly and so that's the other place that you can tend to walk is the washed out areas so where rivers and things typically flood where mm -hmm. flooding typically happens you can walk there too but be cognizant really i so i'll tell you where this article is it's um BarefootTheory.com, and it's their article called Desert Hiker's Guide to Cryptobiotic Soil. It was really interesting. They have really good pictures of how you can identify it, what it looks like in its younger stages versus its older stages. Okay. It was a really informative article. I really liked it. So one thing that I'm going to say, and it's going to stick in your brain from now on, tiptoe through the crypto. <laughs> Be careful and tiptoe through the crypto. And... and have, have a good attitude about 
about these kinds of behaviors and, and learning this kind of information in national parks. Yeah. Uh, it, it doesn't hurt anything for you to be more informed and a little more careful. In fact, it's fascinating and, and an interesting thing to share with your friends or your kids or whatever. It gives you something really cool to talk about when you are meeting new people. Yeah. And it, and it doesn't hurt your experience. No, not at all. Avoiding damaging the earth you're visiting doesn't take away from your visit there. Not at all. And it only enhances things going forward. Mm-hmm. And it makes it, it means it'll be there forever. Yes. So you can come back over and over again and see the same beautiful place. And you can think to yourself, I protected something that's 5,000 plus years old. Mm-hmm. That's really cool to think. Yeah. So, yeah, just be careful, be cognizant, and tiptoe around it. It's not everywhere. It's not like a minefield. No, but it's definitely, it's very common and it's easy to miss and it's easy to step on. And you see rangers everywhere, even on trails that aren't in the national park system. We have volunteers who are constantly, while we were there the last time, saying, hey, just be mindful. There's a lot around here, including cryptobiotic soil. And she told us all about it. She was really nice. She was really good. I love that. So just be kind to them. They're They're just trying to do a service for all of us. When you go to um, Haystack Rock on the Oregon coast, Mm -hmm. whenever the tide is low, uh, park rangers come out to kind of like guide you through the low tide and make sure people don't destroy that whole area. Yeah. Because that's where so many creatures live. Exactly. And it's it's a it's a really cool job. (laughs) <laughs> right these people it's just their job to like wade out into the water and say this is where you can stand and what you can't and they they have so much information to share with you like mm-hmm. take advantage of all of the knowledge inside a park ranger for oh, sure they went to school for a reason mm-hmm. they definitely did and honestly they're dying to talk about it oh yes <laughs> so let them go oh, please <laughs> please let them talk i remember this feeling i just wanted to tell you things that were fun <laughs> All right. So I'm done with what I'm sure, hopefully not all of you, but some of you were probably like, Shannon, oh my God, what was this episode? (laughs) (laughs) It was great. But so what I want to talk about is there are four districts in Canyonlands. So I want to talk about the cool things that you can go see there. Yeah. So the four districts, there's Island in the Sky. There's the Needles. There's the Maze. And then the rivers themselves, so the Colorado and the Green River, are considered their own district. Okay. So, let's first talk about Island in the Sky. So, this is the easiest one to get to. It's the entrance that's right next to Arches. It's really simple to get to. There's shorter hikes. It's more driving. You're seeing all of these scenic overlooks more often. This is where you go if you want to see the vistas, if you want to get a look of all of the canyons, if you want to watch everything at sunset and just see everything beautiful like we talked about before. Um, there's a place approachable for people of all different kinds of abilities. Exactly. This really is the most approachable section of the park. Uh, Upheaval Dome is really cool. So Upheaval Dome, there's debate on how upheaval dome was formed lately the most common thing is that a meteorite meteor meteorite one of those (laughs) hit that section of the park and that commingling with all of the different bacterias and soils and animals of the area created what you see today it's really cool it's just different colored sand and dirt in this weird formation that I can't even describe to you in a way that would make sense. Go look <laughs> it up and then go see it. It's really cool. Brian and I went there for the first time last year. We went after we got married and kind of toured some of the things that we hadn't seen in Canyonlands before. And that was one of them. And it was worth it. It's just a short little hike. It's easy. Um, Green River Overlook. Go there at sunset. 
Green River Overlook at sunset is beautiful, mm-hmm. just gorgeous. But then obviously you need to go to Grand Viewpoint. It's that's why it got a name. It's absolutely grand. You see, ev- it's where you can see most of the park. It's a really an overlook into everything. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. You should do it. Cool. If you're feeling adventurous, go ahead and try the Schaefer Switchbacks. The, the Schaefer Switchbacks is one entrance into the White Room Road. Okay. It's, I recommend a four-wheel drive and I recommend not being afraid of heights because <laughs> it's sketchy. It's scary sometimes. You feel on the edge and especially when you have to pass other cars. And this is one section of the road where you're definitely going to be passing more cars because mm-hmm. a lot of people do this. Um, so just be prepared for tight little dirt roads and trying to find the next pull-off. <laughs> in a lot of places in southern Utah, there are guided um, like Jeep tours and stuff. This is one that does it. So if you're feeling uncomfortable, but you want to see this stuff, somebody else can take you. Yes. So they'll actually do a significant mm. portion of the White Room Road as a guided Jeep tour. And it's really... It's great. It looks really cool. I haven't done the guided ones. We've just done it ourselves. But we did cross paths with one of the Jeep tours, and he was a delightful human being. We can't all invest in our own four-wheel drive whole setup, right? No. So, um, But everybody can still get a look at this cool stuff. Yes. Amazing. Yes. Last thing I'm going to suggest, and it is a bit of a hike to get out there, but it's not strenuous. It's just kind of busy is Mesa Arch. It's beautiful. It was one of the places that we were thinking about getting married, but it was too busy, (laughs) (laughs) too busy. Um, the next district is the needles here. You're going to find a lot longer hiker hikes than what you're going to see in Island in the sky and not as many scenic viewpoints from the roads. You're going to have to hike to get to them. Okay. So this one's not as easily accessible to just people who want to drive around and see things. There's some stuff to go drive around and see, and it's still a beautiful drive. You're just not going to get as much out of it driving as you do in Island in the sky. I'm guessing that if you hop on all trails or apps similar to that, they can tell you what trails are accessible for people who have like need walking assistance Mm -hmm. of some kind. So you can find there are options for everybody. For sure. But not every option is available to everyone. Right. But I'm sure there are a lot of places you can get that information. Definitely. If you have somebody in your group who needs... uh, any kind of assistance. Absolutely. Like I said, for that, I would highly recommend Island in the Sky. You're going to get the most bang for your buck. Yeah. Um, but so there's one place you can hike to. It's called Roadside Ruins. I haven't been there yet, but I've looked it up and I want to go. It looks really cool. Yeah. Cave Spring that we talked about earlier, which is an old ranch area. Very cool. <laughs> Elephant Hill. Elephant Hill is amazing and terrifying. And do not drive it unless you have a four wheel drive and you have just... The mental stamina to be able to handle backing up on a fucking hill. (laughs) I, so not only is Elephant Hill, so we went into what's called Devil's Kitchen, which is a whole camping area and leads to a whole system of trails that's amazing and beautiful and gorgeous. And if you're brave and you want to backpack, or if you're not brave and you want to backpack back there, that's an option too. Oh my God. <laughs> is that the one where when people are driving up, it is so steep that it looks like their front wheels are going to come off the hill? The hill? Mm-hmm. I hate it. It's not even that. So like you actually legitimately have to do a three point turn to turn around in this tiny little section. Sketchy as hell. <gasps> oh my God. And I thought Elephant Hill was bad. And then you get over Elephant Hill and then you get to what is even worse than what Elephant Hill was. If you thought <laughs> Elephant Hill was scary. <laughs> And that's when Brian kicks you out of the car because you're going, holy fuck, holy fuck, holy fuck. (laughs) 
You're walking. You're walking now. I walked so much. (laughs) So much. Brian was so sick of my shit. He's like, are you going to stop closing your eyes and gripping the whole, like, handle? (laughs) I... And he's a pretty patient person. patient person. (laughs) I... I didn't ride in the car at all on the way back, and it was probably for the best, because even Brian, who is unshakable, we got to camp, and he's like, I don't, I don't want this trip to end, and it's only because I don't want to drive back out. <laughs> oh my god! It was so scary. Like, I, well, I'll put some pictures of that trip as well and show you what this road looked like and what we drove through. It was intense, and I just... I have never needed a beer as much as I needed a beer when we got to camp. (laughs) I mean, um, four wheelers um, and Jeep people from all over the world come there for those trails. And just be prepared that you're not allowed to drive your ATVs. You're not allowed to drive your razors. You're not allowed to drive anything like that. It has to be a four wheel drive road vehicle. It's big. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. That was the one of the greatest experiences of my life, and I would recommend it if you feel up to it. But we did watch some people the last time we went get scared shitless, and it makes sense. It's, <laughs> it's a cool place. We'll post some pictures. I'll show you guys what we did. It was really fun. I recommend it. Another place that I recommend there in the Needles is Druid Arch. Oh, that just sounds really cool. It's really cool. Um, the third section is the maze. We have not been to the maze yet. That is next on our bucket list and will likely happen next year. The maze is the most elusive of the four districts in Canyonlands, and this is because most people visiting the maze need four-wheel drive, need to be prepared to backpack in, camp overnight, and it requires special permits. It's actually rare for visitors to spend less than three days in the maze, and it's included in the list of top 10 t- dangerous hikes in Utah. Ooh. And it is. It's... It takes a lot to get out there, and that's why we haven't done it yet. It's really cool. It's one of it's listed in one of the places to see being like the most pitch black and be able to do like the less the least amount of light pollution. Yes, least amount of light pollution is what I was going for. It's we want to go there so badly, so I can't describe it yet. I haven't been it been there, but I have seen pictures. It looks amazing. Um, the Doll House is a really prominent rock feature there that we really that's a big thing that we want to go see. It's really cool. Go check it out. There's the Maze Overlook Trail, there's Horseshoe Canyon that's really famous, and then there's Land of Standing Rocks, which includes Chimney Rock, which is also a very famous rock formation there. Mm-hmm. Highly recommend it if you're feeling really adventurous and trust yourself and have a four-wheel drive car and really like backpacking. Yeah. Sounds cool. Um, and then the fourth district is the rivers. There are so many different guided river tours in the area. There are so many different things that you can do on there. You can do white water rafting. There's some rapids that are like small level that they can take you on. There's some more advanced level ones that they can take you on. It's really cool. And you will not be without a guide because there are so, 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 so many of them down there. Mm-hmm. Highly recommend it. The rivers are gorgeous. They are a little low, but still worth checking out that's just kind of how it is that's just kind of how it goes that's Canyonlands. i love it i'm sorry if i bored you to tears with all these things but i was reading this week and i was just like oh my god it's this a is special so place cool. it's a special magical wonderful wonderful place and i highly recommend you guys try and visit it at least once in your life it's one of those treasures that you have to you have it costs you a little bit to get there mm-hmm. you have to earn it kind of a little bit and that make i think that must make it more magical i think so 
Like, I think so. Like I was scared, but I did it. And now I get this. Now I get this. I, I entirely recommend my first experience with the park was White Rim Road. We actually didn't even go to any of the overlooks. We just went. And I mean, to be fair, it was we drove there after work and we had to get about 20 miles in on the road, which is a long thing to do. Maybe it was only like it's like a hundred it's a hundred and something round trip mile to get there. I think we had to get like 10 to 20 miles in the first day. So we were just like, okay, we've got water. We've got our maps. Let's go (laughs) (laughs) down, down the switchbacks. We went and it, I'm glad I experienced that for the first time, but it is well worth, I think for your first time going, experiencing the overlooks, seeing all of these beautiful things that you can go see and then plan out your trip from there. Sounds beautiful. I mean, there's there's a version of Canyonlands for everybody. That's exactly it. Get out there and find yours. Go find yours. It's fun. It's amazing. And I will never shut up about it ever. <laughs> ever. I just want for everybody to experience that side of, of desert life. Mm-hmm. I think it sounds yucky and empty to a lot of people. And when you see it, then you understand, like, it's not the same, but it's, a, it's its own kind of beautiful. It's its own beautiful. I lived in Utah my whole life, and it wasn't until five years ago because it was when brian and i met that i finally went to moab and central southern central utah Mm -hmm. it was not what i expected at all it's it's crazy how many different kinds of wilderness there is in utah there are in utah it just changes so fast well and just same with across the country so go visit go visit your national parks Mm -hmm. go check them out go see the magic for yourself of things that are right there next to you it could be hidden and you'd have no idea and it's just right there and it's it's wild i grew up here where the ground is hard Mm -hmm. and when i first went to um great smoky mountain mountain national park the the ground in a forest is kind of like squishy yeah it is because there's all the stuff falling from the trees and composting itself on the ground Uh and i was like bouncing on my feet yes and they're like what are you doing and I was like the ground here is so it's like squishy. springy yeah like it's just the ground and I was like you don't understand you my, don't get it my ground doesn't do this the ground there is very hard this <laughs> like, is different it was so funny so the Wasatch Mountain Range is the one we're tucked right up against yep. here in Utah and it's part of the Rocky Mountains and um when I went to Virginia and Tennessee, they told me up against the Smoky Mountains, oh, is this the first time you've seen real mountains? <laughs> and I was like, well, mm. they're different ones. Yeah. These ones are older. Yeah. These ones, I have never seen mountains this green before, right. but I've definitely seen mountains. I know what mountains are. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but everybody, I love that everybody's so proud of where they live. I think that's great. And want you to see how beautiful it is and how special it is to them. And it is special. That's also a cool thing about guides. A lot of them are native. And Mm -hmm. so they have a a secret love for the place they're showing you. And that's that's very special, too. It's beautiful. (sighs) What a world. What a world. It's a beautiful one. I'm glad you got to come with us on this cool ride. National parks are the best. Take care of them. Go see them. Just have fun. Yeah, just have fun. And let's do this again sometime. Say hi to your mom for me. <laughs> <laughs>